Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Or a draft of it. In 1984, which is such a long time ago, it's probably longer ago than some people are, have been living who are in, in the room. And it was such an eccentric thing and such a, a kind of unusual thing for me to have done. When I came to Princeton, New Jersey, which is the setting of the novel, in 1978, again, that seems a really long time ago, I was so struck by the, the atmosphere of history it's a, sort of a revolutionary war battlefield area just really steeped with American history and 19th century history and so I thought that I would write a historical novel which I, I'd never done anything like that before I've never even really read historical novels except classics maybe like um, Stendhal, The Charter House of Parma I think is a is a historical novel, and others that are classics. So the whole idea of writing a historical novel was something that just sort of came upon me when I was at Princeton. So I wrote a novel called Belfleur, which is a family tragedy, sort of tragic epic, and it was an opportunity for me to put in various elements of American history. I'll just wait till this is over with. <laughs> it's really distracting. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote this long novel. It was very interesting and unusual. And I, I remember putting things up on the wall and um, maps and drawings and genealogical charts and it, it being a different kind of experience from anything I'd done before. As most of my writing before in the long form had been a real, realism. And there's quite a distinction between Gothicism and, and realism. And basically, a, a realistic novel is, is something that's set in a very coherent time and place so that you can actually go there. A quintessential example of a novel that combines the surreal, the symbolic, and the real, and the real is Joyce's 
Ulysses, so one can actually go to Dublin and one can walk along the streets that Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus walk along at the same time as the novel progresses, more and more phantasmagoria erupts and the, the inner life and the, the unconscious sort of is given this wonderfully palpable and rich vocabulary in Joyce. And that's the kind of writing I feel very at home with so that there's a historical reality that's sort of the bedrock and then upon that since they're human beings in this setting and we human beings are just filled with imaginative ideas and, and fantasies so that the, the fantastic or the surreal is sort of superimposed upon the real. And then I read another novel in that series called called A Bloodsmere Romance, obviously a romance, and based upon 19th century women's romances. And all the novels are postmodernist uh, metafictions, that sort of commentary on the tradition. What we mean by, by postmodernism that is that the writer is very conscious of there being a tradition. And sometimes there is a, a reversal of themes or situations or characters or um, not parody exam exactly because that sounds superficial but a kind of ironic extension or antithetical examinations of things that are treated differently in, in modernism. So a Blesma romance involved the reading of a lot of women's romances. You know, the great literature has always been male, the adventures of men, like Moby Dick <laughs> is the quintessential great American novel, and there's barely a woman in it. I think it's a flashback to Captain Ahab's young wife. But there are no, there are no females in it except whales. <laughs> fantastically bloody, of a very bloody, one of the great bloody chapters in, in, um, in Moby Dick is the the slaughter of whales and nursing whales and so forth. But basically, the woman's novel was filled with domestic details. It's a debased and, and a contempt, quote, contemptible literature that people felt contempt for. And when you read it, you'll see that uh, women's literature of the 19th century, the romances, are what we would call kind of simple. They're romances, and, and yet there's a great charm and there's great, much information in them that you, you don't really find in the, in the male adventure novels. The great uh, theologically adventurous novels and works by Nathaniel Hawthorne, I mean they are explorations of, of the intellect and of, of cerebral, um, almost like pilgrimages into subtleties of the conscience. But you don't find anything real in Nathaniel Hawthorne. You, you would never see the interior of a house or know what people were eating in, in that world. But his contemporary women uh, novelists are the ones who supply that. So if you're interested in American history as it really existed, the women's novels provide that. And just the whole idea of propagation of having babies, you know, and people living and dying and being ill. All the, the domestic reality of the lives that we all live is not really preserved in great male literature. You don't find that in Hemingway, for instance, and you find you only find a little bit of, of it in Faulkner when the black 
people like Dilsey are taking care of the white people. I've sort of got, sorry, I've really gotten off on a tangent. I haven't thought of some of these things before this minute, but if you look at the great male literature, like let's say Shakespeare, you, you never would have a clue as to how people are actually actually living, and that, that is kind of interesting. Domestic realism is hard to write. John Updike is one of the uh, male writers who does it very well. Norman Mailer doesn't even try to do it. <laughs> well, that many writers don't try to do things. Samuel Beckett didn't try to do that. Cormac McCarthy is a great writer, but he never, never tries to do anything like that. Anne Tyler is a wonderful writer of, of domestic realism. I've done a lot of domestic realism. Probably my most best-known novel in that mode is We Were the Mulvaney's, which is absolutely, um, you know, achingly real and just like opening a door or window into an actual family and the way they live. Now this novel is somewhere in between. It does have elements of domestic realism. There are scenes in people's bedrooms and scenes in um, interiors, but a lot of it is in the world of the phantasmagoric, which is sort of the Edgar Allan Poe landscape, where the, the extreme hypocrisy of the white privileged class of Princeton sort of erupts in these demonic manifestations. So the novel is called The Accursed, and it's about a, a time and a place in America, probably still you can find these places and even today, where there's extreme uh, hypocrisy and the, there are taboos that are not spoken of as a theme of the novel, the unspeakable. And the, the main taboo that's not spoken of is the taboo of race. The privileged white affluent society is very anxious about, quote, what they would call the mongrelization of the race. The Ku Klux Klan, which maybe you never have had in California, doesn't exist out here, did it? Did it ever? Really? Aryan Nation. Ku Klux Klan. Aryan Nation? Aryan Nation. Yeah, Ar Aryan Nation. Well, Aryan Nation is a, a prison gang, isn't it? Like white. Yeah, I suppose they continue. If there are any of you here, I'm not making, I'm not dissing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything at all. It, it's just descriptive. <laughs> Well, the Ku Klux Klan started after, after in restoration with the, um, the uh, Reconstruction and it began in New Jersey around the time of my novel. There are racist elements, but they, they coalesced into the actual Klan in South Jersey in the 1920s, I think, and my novel's a little bit before that. But I know, obviously, all parts of the United States have racial problems and all all nations have racial or ethnic problems, so it's not that I'm criticizing America in any particular way. But anyway, in Princeton at that time, there were people like Woodrow Wilson who could have been extraordinary leaders and, and exemplary Christians, but they, they kind of just turned aside, though there were lynchings quite... Um, fairly near, nearby, like less than an hour's drive away. So the whole taboo of speaking about race is something that erupts in the novel. And then another taboo, obviously, at this time in the early 20th century is anything to do with sexuality or the human body 
uh, anything to do with how babies are born. Many girls and women would actually be married with no clue of how, how babies were born. What a shock. <laughs> I don't know what happened when these people, we're talking about privileged people, we're not talking about scullery maids and, and, and people who worked on farms who, who have obviously a clue. But on this privileged level, it was amazing how if you were a girl, and you were a good girl, the measurement of your goodness was your ignorance. That you didn't know lots of things. And if you knew things, just the idea of not having knowledge would almost lower you in estimation of, of men uh, in that class, obviously. And so that's uh, the two, that, those areas of taboo. And then another that I talk about a little bit is the class warfare. It was a time when labor was being organized, one of the bloody labor wars and, and unionizing and uh, trying to organize labor. And the people in this novel, whose houses are still in Princeton, the beautiful big old estates are still in Princeton. I drive past them when I come in from we live out in the country and come in to teach at the university. These grand old names are still there. And these people owned like armor, the slaughterhouses in in Chicago. They were related to that family and they owned mills on the Delaware River and elsewhere where children as young as five or six were working and they're losing their fingers and and getting consumption and tuberculosis and so forth. So it was t a time of acute class warfare. It almost seems to some people that we're lapsing back into a, another America where there's a very, very it's relatively small, privileged class has all the money and all the, the wealth and property and then a kind of a small, decreasingly powerful middle class and then uh, working poor. We have a working poor class. There are people who work very hard but they're poor and then the people who are disenfranchised. So, and all, Some people would say we're going back to, to that kind of America. So I'll just read a little bit from The Accursed, and then I'll be happy to try to answer questions if you have questions. I get talking, and I like to talk about ideas of formality and, and literature. Uh, I think I'll read a chapter called Snake Frenzy. The whole, whole novel starts, uh, the first chapter, um, a gothic novel, a mystery novel, um, it's like a, has an unwritten contract with the reader where you start in the beginning. Like the first chapter starts the plot and the chapters advance the plot. If there's a mystery, the mystery is being uh, investigated. And then in the last chapter, there is a resolution and explanation. I don't know how absolutely explicit it is, but I don't think it's tacit or hidden. It's not like a writing, reading a literary novel where you may read the whole thing and then you sort of turn the last page and say, what? Oh. Uh, did it end? You know, like, well, what happened? And that's because a literary novel doesn't, it's not supposed to have a precursor in, in terms of form. It's supposed to be unique. So a literary novel can be all sorts of strange things and certainly uh, the great modernist example would be Samuel Beckett in his his novels and in his plays as well, where it's almost like this extended middle that, that it's just brilliant and very darkly uh, brilliant 
writing without any obvious plot and anything that's that seems to be linear. But in in these genre novels, there's a different sort of unwritten contract between the writer and the reader that something will actually happen and that it will be explained, and you're not. Uh, you won't go away with, without knowing what it means. Now this is a little chapter. I've chosen it because it's short. And this is a long novel. A snake frenzy. Soon after there came the outbreak of female nerves or hysteria at the Rocky Hill Seminary for Girls on a Monday morning in early April 1906. Historians curious about this minor and neglected outbreak of the curse may consult the Princeton packet for April 3rd of the year, which reported the incident with prominent headlines on the front page. Snake frenzy reported at the Rocky Hill Seminary. 28 students, three faculty members succumb, feigning an epileptiform seizures. Oh, a whole other theme of the, of the novel is the med medicine and, and uh, medical knowledge and medical treatments and the way doctors treated patients, especially women of that time. That's a, that's a, that's a laugh riot. If, if you're a woman, to see how male, male doctors were treating women. My friend Elaine Showalter has a book called The Female Malady. And the idea is that in those, those decades to be female was a malady because you weren't male. And so all the different elements of a female body, like the, in, the hormones and the way women supposedly be, behave, all those were considered to be aberrant because they, they, they were not the same as the, the male. The model was the male. It was Wilhelmina Burroughs' misfortune to find herself at the center of this bizarre episode, never satisfactorily explained by neutral observers, as by research scientists at the university, but rather brushed aside as female hysterics. Wilhelmina was directing the girls' choir in the music hall at the school, a neoclassic building set upon a ridge overlooking the Millstone River, when suddenly a wanly pretty girl named Penelope faltered in the midst of her soprano solo in Mr. Selby's ever-popular The Rural Retreat. For those f very, very few people who are at all interested, the novel also has lots of little poems and songs from the era of surpassing an incredulous badness. The poems are so bad that nobody could write them today. Woodrow Wilson tried his hand at some of this love poem poetry too. So that was fun to do, to do uh, research in. Staring with widened eyes past the choir mistress's head, and now gone deathly white, pointed to the ornamental molding at the top of the wall that boarded the ceiling, saying, oh, it is alive, the serpent. There, it is wakened. It is, has moved. It's coming now for us. For some stunned seconds, the hall was locked in silence. Wilhelmina might have heard the tiny ticking of her watch. The stricken girl began to breathe hoarsely and chattily, whispering, the serpent, the serpent, still pointing at the ceiling. I'm glad there aren't any here. <laughs> that would be too uh, ironic. It's a really sort of uh, modern and, and clean cut ceiling. But in the old days, there were this, these very ornamental sculpted moldings up by the ceilings. The serpent, still pointing at the ceiling, she sank into the arms of the girls beside her in a dead faint, after which all the girls began to scream and faint, and chaos erupted in the music hall. 
It had long intrigued Wilhelmina that the elegant neoclassical music building was so curiously decorated in its moldings. She'd noticed the first time she entered the music hall how at the ceiling there were sinuous sculpted white forms not quite visible, possibly Italianate vines or frozen waves or indeed outstretched serpents. That these were whites was a misnomer for with the passage of time the moldings had become discolored but unevenly so that there were suggestions of saddles and not a uniformity of hue. In a play of light in quite ordinary circumstances the moldings had seemed to move to a degree. Wilhelmina had noticed this herself but had dismissed it as an optical illusion. Yet now it seemed that the serpents had roused themselves from their long slumber and were moving. How the Rocky Hill Seminary girls shrieked. A second girl slumped through the floor in a faint, and a third in, as Wilhelmina came to help her, she collided with two terrified girls who thrust themselves into her arms as if they were young children. For the snakes were now writhing and had begun to slither down the walls and window frames, just perceptibly visible and horribly on all sides. Wilhelmina, the only adult in the room amid a gathering of some 30 adolescent girls, found herself utterly panicked and perplexed, for she could not see definitively that the snakes were slithering down from the molding. Yet judging by an unusual agitation of the air and the terrified cries of the girls, it was reasonable to conclude that something was amiss. Something was very much amiss, and she was responsible for protecting her girls from it. Another girl began to scream, pointing past Wilhelmina. Oh, there, the black snake. He is roused. He is angry. He is coming for us. And now a greater terror ensued as the girls lunged and rushed about, whimpering and sobbing and white faced, with no idea of how to escape the snakes. As it seemed, the snakes could not actually be seen. Yet it was clear there were snakes slithering toward them from all sides along the polished floor. Wilhelmina shouted for order and was unheard, rushed about to calm, to scold, to intervene, even to threaten. But there were too many panicked girls and emotions ran too high, like a sudden wildfire on a windy day. All that the instructors could do was try to prevent the girls from trampling and injuring one another in their haste to exit the hall. Take care, please. There are no snakes. Where are all these snakes? I see no snakes. Priscilla, Marion, please do not push. You must leave the hall in an orderly fashion. Please, girls. Wilhelmina herself was nearly sobbing now in frustration and mounting fear. Trying to prevent the girls from injuring one another, Wilhelmina stumbled and staggered, for there seemed to be something wriggling and writhing and sinuous at her feet, a slithering muscular shape, like a bar-relief come to life. Oh, a splendid creature, not wildly white but blackly iridescent, touched with scales that glinted silver and puce and okra, its underbelly finely ribbed and as creamy pale and smooth as the fairest-skinned girl at Rocky Hill, its broad, flat, intelligent head held high, tongue flicking, and tawny, gem-like eyes glowing as if in recognition. Beyond this, Wilhelmina knew no more, for amid the hysteria of girls, she too fainted, her petticoats crackling around her and her high starch collar cutting into her throat. I should have said parenthetically that Wilhelmina was a blue stocking. She's a, uh, an independent young woman from a very good family who wanted to have her own career and didn't want to marry and just have children in a conventional way. And so she, sometimes these women actually wore blue stockings, and they were all feminists, of course. And so 
maybe this is something of her punishment for being so, so uppity. Elsewhere in the school, someone sounded the fire alarm. The Rocky Hill fire wagon with a half dozen eager volunteer firemen aboard arrived within minutes. Unfortunately, this contributed to the hysteria as their fire alarms and sirens were definitely loud. And shortly it seemed that the girls throughout the school, not just the choir members, had succumbed to the mysterious frenzy, screaming at the sight of invisible serpents that slithered and slid and squirmed and coiled and leapt and writhed, advancing threateningly at them from all sides. The firemen were amazed and baffled, for they could discover no fire and could not see the snakes, though the screaming girls pointed them out and ran from them in the chill of early April. Several teachers were now involved in trying to restore calm. Of these, one was a young man, a mathematics instructor named Halloran of a nervous disposition, who seemed to be seeing the snakes himself or their agitated impressions in the moist earth and fell into a faint. Or as Dr. Boudinot later described the phenomenon, epileptiform seizures of unaccountable origin. In all, the worst of the snake frenzy lasted scarcely an hour, as by degrees the snakes seemed to vanish. Whether the creatures escaped into the muddy bog behind the music school or simply disappeared, to be discovered in their original benign and bland forms in the aged molding in the music hall the following day. Yet the effects of the history were not as easily cast off. Symptoms varied considerably from girl to girl and from instructor to instructor. Some felt the upset for the remainder of the day. Some could not return for weeks. And others, including the Latin teacher, Miss Cooper, and poor Mr. Halloran, were never again to be entirely free of the snake vision for the remainder of their lives. The seminary headmistress, Miss Singleton, a physically fit woman in her early 60s, would claim to have never seen a single snake, not anywhere. Yet she too had been nervously affected and was perceived to have lost some of the poise and self-confidence for what she'd been known. Wilhelmina was ill for a week, surprisingly, and when she recovered, surprised her colleagues and Miss Singleton by resigning her position at the seminary with the abashed explanation. As I succumbed to the most ridiculous of female hysterics and could not prevent my students from fits of madness, I'm afraid that I am not much more mature than the silliest of them and have no right to be teaching them. Then there's a little postscript. Uh, many of the chapters have postscripts explaining the chapters that precede. The novel is not written by me so much. It's written by an amateur historian named Van Dyke. And he's somebody who's contemporaneous with these people, though he was just a child when the, thing, the curse happened. Uh, postscript, Nature's Burden. Though the snake frenzy was to be spoken of in Princeton and vic vicinity for decades, the episode was quickly dismissed by authorities as by Dr. Boudinot and his medical scientific colleagues as a regrettable example of female hysterics. In the packet was a prominent article in which a number of gentlemen in the community were invited to comment on the upset. The consensus being that I quote, hallucinatory epidemic of unknown origin had swept through the girls' school and the snakes were mere imaginings. Among the gentlemen interviewed were several research scientists at the university, as well as President Wilson himself. He's a major character in the novel. He was president of the university at this time, as you know, went on to become governor of New Jersey and then president of the United States. I was always considered a fairly uh, one of the better presidents 
of the United States, but when you actually look at his record carefully, it's not, it's not that, that great. Several, and he had actually failed as president at Princeton. He failed to govern the university, so he went on and then he, got, he governed the United States. So it's, it's very difficult to be president at, at Princeton. So uh, he said, well, several of the men uh, affected a mirthful tone, suggesting that the excitable girls and their instructors were in need of better, more authoritarian jurisdiction, namely a male headmaster for the school. But Woodrow Wilson, conscious of his position as chief administrator at the university, did not choose to criticize the seminary headmistress or any of the instructors. Graciously, he noted that there had certainly been numerous outbreaks of demonic behavior at Princeton University in the early 1800s when the boys rebelled like clockwork. Well, parenthetically, I should say, when I did my research and looking into the history of Princeton University, I did discover the outbreaks of demonic behavior by the boys, many of them quite young. Undergraduates were very young in those days. They could be as young as 15, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they would just riot one once in a while and set fire to their classrooms and do things like that. There was no evident political reason for it. You know, it's not like UC Berkeley in 1968 where there's actually a, a real reason for it. It almost seems that there's something about young men when they get together and they're sort of in some conflicting relationship with elders who are, who are very boring and authoritarian. They just sort of erupt. And so I, had a, I well, thought I'd have a whole chapter on that, but it ends up just being a footnote. It's too bad. <laughs> so he wasn't going to pass judgment on seminary because of his history at the university. Dr. Wilson concluded with an appeal for sympathy, understanding, and patience. Quote, for a woman, this is capital W, and if you're a woman, your heart sinks when you see words like that because you know something really awful is coming. Woman for whom nature, capital N, has burdened with a load far heavier than man, capital M, that is propagation, must be judged with tolerance and forbearance in areas where, with no regard for intention, she has seriously lagged behind men. Thank you. So I'll be happy to try to answer any questions that you had. Yes, sir. I haven't read the, a couple of your novels, but I have read a lot of your short stories. And I've noticed one of the themes that goes through them is, is the theme of obsession with whatever it may be, a person, uh, uh, the, the one story you wrote about the, the jogger. Uh, oh, the, you know, yeah, uh, running, running. That you find that easier to write about or more interesting or... Oh, obsession. I suppose this novel is about obsession too. Is once the curse starts manifesting itself, a young man in a novel like the hero, he becomes obsessed with solving the mystery. And I think it, I think it mimics the, the novelist's obsessive, compulsive personality. That might be. Oh, many no, many novels seem to be about obsession. I think. If you do Twitter or look online or the social media, people seem to be very obsessed with with being heavy. With, I guess it depends upon whose Twitter you, you read. People are on diets, you know, they're obsessed with food and being obese. It seems to be a whole a whole element. I haven't I haven't explored that quite yet. 
Yes, I have, an, I have a story about a jogger, and then I have a story about a runner. One's called running. I don't remember the other. Is how, how are you doing? That's called the running. running. Yeah, the long, long sentence. That's a woman runner. Yeah. Then there's another one more recent. It's something like, hi, how you, how's it going? Because if you're a jogger, if you're a runner, if you're particularly sort of a quiet person and you're running along, there's always this, there are always these big guys, I'm sorry if there's someone in the room, they're coming along, their legs are so long and they have so many muscles and they always overtake you and they thud, they thud past you. And as they go by, they say, hi, how's it going? <laughs> and you just really don't want to hear that. And then if you see them coming toward you and you're thinking, please, please don't say anything, don't say anything. You know, and as they get, they, yeah, they, they grin with huge teeth and they say, hi, how's it going? <laughs> so in that story that I wrote, in one of my, my collections from uh, the Mysterious Press, somebody ha has actually has a gun and says, this is how it's going, he shoots them. I patented that, you know. I, I, I don't think anybody's done it yet. But if anybody does it, it's, you see where it started. <laughs> he says, hi, I'll tell you how it's going. And he shoots him. So it's sort of a mystery. I said it at the University of Michigan Arboretum. There's a nice, a nice running trail there. People who are runners, who, who are quiet, introverted people, understand what I'm talking about, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. Historic moments. Yeah, Well, you know, writing a novel takes place over a period of time, so you get an idea, and then things start crystallizing around it. It's like some sort of chemistry experiment where you put something in a solution, and after a while, things start to crystallize. So say you're writing a novel set in 1905 or 6, you'd be surprised how in your ordinary reading and just, you know, ordinary life, for weeks and months, uh, you just start hearing more things, you know, like Jack London did this in 1905, and Mark Twain was here, and Upton Sinclair was here. You sort of start hearing about things like that. But the one thing I didn't put in that I really should have and didn't is Jack Johnson was the first uh, black heavyweight title holder in America, and he was coming along at this time, and I think it was 1907 when he, he was started uh, attain a uh, great notoriety because any kind of a black any kind of a black athlete was very controversial and I didn't put him in the novel so I'm, so I believe that for somebody else to do I really I don't know how I missed that that's just one of these things but as I said it's odd but if you're writing historical fiction how once you choose the time and maybe some of the themes you start reading and, and seeing a movie and or television and a lot of things start being relevant to what you're writing about and then because I started this in 1983 a lot of years went by and I would get clippings out of the New York Times and elsewhere and put them in the you know like the, I had a first draft of the manuscript I sort of put them in the manuscript you know like 
investigate or you know write more or develop or something. So I would go back and rewrite a little. It's nice to have a novel that you're always working on because you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I work on my novel this morning. You never think, you never wake up in the morning and say, I don't have one thing to do. <laughs> like, like you know, your life is like the great Sahara Desert. We have nothing meaningful to do. We all have plenty of things to do, but. Uh, writing a novel is a meaningful thing. At least I think it's meaningful. So I was explaining to my, my husband the other day, my husband's a neuroscientist, but he, he closed his lab so he doesn't have, uh, having experiments is analogous to having a novel. And I said that writing a novel always gives you the sense that you're doing something. Even if you don't have a new idea, you can revise pages in a novel. And if you don't even want to revise pages, you can look at your outline and, and make your outline a little more complicated. And if you can't do any of that, you can look at your map up on the wall and kind of do little things with the map. One of the fun things I had with the novel was my big maps. They're very large. And so when the novel was going to be published, my editor asked me if I would uh, do a small-scale map and then an artist transferred it here. So basically, it's, it's the real village of Princeton in that time. It's the real, the, the roads and the houses, and many of the big old houses. It's sort of like Downton Abbey. Not as ugly as Downton Abbey, <laughs> but they're sort of like based on, modeled after these English country houses. Some of them are still there, and some of them I made up. A few, a couple, just two or three I made up. But the university buildings are all there, the seminary. And at this time in our history, these people were so affluent, so, um, so prestigious and, and so conservative that they actually boasted you could come to Princeton University and to the seminary. They, they promised we have no new ideas here. <laughs> President Patton promised, like to the parents of the young boys who are coming there, we have no new ideas at our university. And I thought that was very funny. Now in 2013, uh, Princeton's completely different. We have a woman president, we have we had our first Jewish president. We have many women on the faculty, I and mean, it's completely different. And we, of course, the United States has its first black president, which would have been completely, completely unbelievable to the inhabitants of this world. Then, if any of you know New Jersey, there's a, the New Jersey, the Pine Barrens in South Jersey, sort of like a big bog, ecologically very interesting and. and um, that's where the Ku Klux Klan sort of began down there. So I moved that up and put it right next to, next to the village. So the Crossworks bog is right here, and I thought that was symbolic and, and sort of that the unconscious is always with us. So maybe just one more question. The questions are so great I can just talk forever. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, what I love most about writing. Well, I guess telling a story that has some dramatic uh, momentum, and I don't exactly know how it's going to end. And I mean, I know sort of how it's going to end, but I don't know how it will get there. And just a complete thrill and excitement, especially with dialogue and how people are talking, and how one person says something that's really just so wonderful, but I didn't really know I would say that. Uh, like, what you're going to be saying on page 375, you have no idea on page one. You know, it's like starting off in your little birch bark canoe in a, in a white water rapids. Well, first, 
it's calm water, and you're sort of starting off, you know, and then it gets faster and faster and, and more and more exciting or terrifying. You're sort of going there trying not to capsize. By the time you get through that experience, it's just very thrilling and very exciting. And then if you're lucky, you have a good first draft, and then you can rewrite it. And then when you rewrite it, every day you have the thrill, as I said, waking up in the morning. Like you wake up and think, well, I'm working my novel today. <laughs> but, but it's all finished so that each sentence can be made a little bit tighter. Maybe you cut some things or put some new things in. I think that Shakespeare must, I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare at all, but I think that Shakespeare must have felt that way when he's writing his plays because he is such a brilliant dramatist. You know, other, other playwrights do inter, you know, intellectual things and, be, and beautiful language, and they do different, different things. But Shakespeare is a consummate dramatist, so the scenes are imagined like the actors are really, in some cases, really going at one another, or the ghost comes in, you know, and, and a lot of uh, witches are there. He's, Shakespeare is always thinking in terms of how, how is this going to be really, really dramatic and get the most of the drama out of it. And I think that must have been very exciting to him, and that is how I feel also. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.